Hello! Today we are reading The Secret Garden. Martha. Part 2, technically. You are a strange servant, she said from her pillows, rather haughtily. Martha sat up on her heels with her blacking brush in her hand and laughed without seeming the least out of temper. Eh, I knew, I know that, she said. If there was a grand missus at Misselthwaite, I should never have been even one of the under-housemaids. I might have been let to be scullery maid, but I'd never have been let upstairs. I'm too common and I talk too much, Yorkshire. But this is a funny house for all that's so grand. Seems like there's neither master nor mistress, except Mr. Pitcher and Mrs. Medlock. Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled. Sorry, Mr. Craven, he won't be troubled about anything when he's here, and he's nearly always away. Mrs. Medlock gave me the place out of kindness. She told me she could never have done it if Misselswaite had been like other big houses. Are you going to be my servant? Mary asked, still in her imperious little Indian way. Martha began to rub her grape again. I'm Mrs. Medlock's servant, she said stoutly, and she's Mrs. De Craven's. But I'm to do the housemaid's work up here and wait on you a bit. But you won't need much waiting on. Who is going to dress me? demanded Mary. Martha sat up on her heels again and stared. She spoke, she spoke in broad Yorkshire in her amazement. Can't Can't thud dress thy sin, she said. What do you mean? I don't understand your language, said Mary. Eh, I forgot, Martha said. Mrs. Medlock told me I'd have to be careful or you wouldn't know what I was saying. I mean, can't you put on your own clothes? No answered Mary quite indignantly. I never did it in my life. My eye addressed me, of course. Well, said Martha, evidently not in the least aware that she was impudent, it's time thou should you learn. Thou cannot begin younger. It'll be, it'll do thee good on weight on thy sin a bit. My mother always said she couldn't see why grand people's children didn't turn out fair fools. What with nurses and being washed and dressed and took out to walk as if they were puppies. It is different in India, said Mary disdainfully. She couldn't scarcely stand this, but Martha was not at all crushed. Eh, I can see it's different. She answered, almost sympathetically. I dare say it's because there's such a lot of blacks there instead of respectable white people. Racist, but...
When I heard you was coming from India, I thought you was a black too. Mary sat up in her bed furious. What? she said. What? You thought it was a native? You, you daughter of pig. Martha stared and looked hot. Who are you calling names? she said. You, you needn't be so vexed. That's not the way for a young lady to talk. I've nothing against the blacks. When you read about them in tracts, they're always very religious. You always read as a black's man and a brother. I've never seen a black, and I was fair pleased to think I was going to see one close. When I come in to light your fire this morning, I crept up on... I crept up to your bed and pulled the cover back, careful to look at you. And there you was, disappointedly. No more black than me, for all you're so yellow. Mary did not even try to control her rage and humiliation. You thought I was a native. You dared. You don't know anything about natives. They are not people. They're servants who must salam you. Salam? I think it's salam. You know nothing about India. You know nothing about anything. She was in such a rage and felt so helpless before the girl's simple stare. And somehow she suddenly felt so horribly lonely and far away from everything she understood and which understood her that she threw herself face downwards on the pillows and burst into passionate sobbing. She sobbed so unrestrainedly that good-natured Yorkshire Martha was a little frightened and quite sorry for her. She went to the bed and bent over her. Eh, you mustn't cry like that there, she begged. You mustn't for sure. I didn't know you'd be vexed. I don't know anything about anything, just like you said. I beg your pardon, miss. Do stop crying. There was something comforting and really friendly in her queer Yorkshire speech and sturdy way which had a good effect on Mary. She gradually ceased crying and became very quiet. Martha looked relieved. It's time for thee to get up now, she said. Mrs. Medlock said I was to carry the breakfast and tea and dinner into the room next to this. It's been made into a nursery for thee. I'll help thee on with thy clothes if thou get out of bed. If the buttons are at the back, Thou cannot button them up the south. When Mary at last decided to get up, the clothes Martha took from the wardrobe were not the ones she had worn when she arrived the night before with Mrs. Medlock. Those are not mine, she said. Mine are black. She looked the thick white wool coat and dress over and added with cool approval. Those are nicer than mine. These are the ones that must put on.
Martha answered. Mr. Craven ordered Mrs. Medlock to get him in London. He said, I won't have a child dressed in black wandering about like a lost soul, he said. It'd make the place sadder than it is. Put colour on her. Mother, she said she knew what he meant. Mother... Mother, she said, she knew what he meant. Mother always knows what a body means. She doesn't hold with black herself. Herself. I hate black things, said Mary. The dressing process was one which tore them both something. Martha had buttoned up her little sisters and brothers, but she had never seen a child who stood still and waited for another person to do things for for her as if she had neither hands nor feet of her own. Why doesn't thou put on thus own shoes? she said when Mary quietly held out her foot. My eye did it, answered Mary, staring. It was the custom, she said that very often. It was the custom. The native servants were always saying it. If one told them to do a thing their ancestors had not done for a thousand years, they gazed at one mildly and said, It is not the custom. And one knew that was the end of the matter. It had not been the custom that Mistress Mary should do anything but stand and allow herself to be dressed like a doll. But before she was ready for breakfast, she began to suspect that her life at Mistlethwaite Manor would end up would end by teaching her a number of things quite new to her. Things such as putting on her own shoes and stockings and picking up things she let fall. If Martha had been a well-trained fine young lady's maid, she would have been more subservient and respectful and would have known that it was her business to brush hair and button boots and pick things up and lay them away. She was, however, only an untrained Yorkshire rustic who had been brought up in a moorland cottage with a swarm of little brothers and sisters who had never dreamed of doing anything but waiting on themselves and on the younger ones who were either babies in arms or just learning to totter about and tumble over things. If Mary Lennox had been a child who was ready to be assumed she would perhaps have laughed at Martha's readiness to talk, but but Mary only listened to her coldly and one and wondered at her freedom of manner or at first she was not at all interested, but gradually, as the girl rattled on in her good-tempered homely way, Mary began to notice what she was saying. "Eh, you should see them all," she said. There's twelve of us, and my father only gets sixteen shilling a week. I can tell you my mother's got put to it to get porridge for them all. They tumble about on the moor and play there all day, and mother says the air of the moor flattens, fattens em. She says she believes they eat the grass as the wild ponies do. Ah, Dickon. He's twelve years old, and he's got a young pony he calls his own. Where did he get it? asked Mary. 
He found it on the moor with its mother, and when it was a little one, and he began to make friends with it and give it bits of bread and pluck young grass for it, and and it got to like him, so it follows him about and it lets him get on its back. Dixon's a kind lad, and animals likes him. Mary had never possessed an animal pet of her own, and had always thought she would like it. So she began to feel a slight interest in Dixon, and as she had never before been interested in anyone but herself, it was the dawning of a healthy sentiment. When she went into the room, which had been made into a nursery for her, she found that it was rather like the one she had slept in. It was not a child room, but a grown-up person's room, with gloomy old pictures on the walls and heavy old oak chairs. A table in the centre was set with a good substantial breakfast, but she had always had a very small appetite, and she looked with something more than indifference at the first plate Martha set before her. I don't want it, she said. That doesn't want thy porridge, Martha exclaimed incredulously. Incredulously? No, that doesn't know how good it is. Put a bit of trickle on it or a bit of sugar. I don't want it, repeated Mary. Eh, said Martha. I can't abide to see good victuals go to waste. If our children was at this table, they'd clean it bare in five minutes. Why? said Mary coldly. Why? echoed Martha. Because they scarce ever had their stomachs full in their lives. They're as hungry as young hawks and foxes. I don't know what is to be hungry, said Mary with the indifference of ignorance. Martha looked indignant. Well, it would do thee good on trot. Well, it would do thee good to try it. I can see that plain enough, she said, outspokenly. I've no patience with folk, with folk as sits and just stares at good bread and meat. My word, don't I wish Dixon and Phil and Jane and the rest of them had what's here under their pinafores? Why don't you take it to them, suggested Mary. It's not mine, answered Martha stoutly, and this isn't my day out. I get my day out once a month, same as the rest, and I go home and clean up for mother and give her a day's rest. Mary drank some tea and ate a little toast and some marmalade. You wrap up warm and run out and play, you, said Martha. It'll do you good and give you some stomach for your meat. Mary went to the window. There were gardens and paths and big trees, but everything looked dull and wintry. Wintry. Out? Why should I go out on a day like this? Well, if that doesn't go out, that the ought have to stay in. And what has that got to do? Mary glanced about her. There was nothing to do. When Mrs. Medlock had prepared the nursery, she had not thought of amusement. Perhaps it would be better to go and see what the gardens were like. Who will go with me? she inquired. 
Martha stared. You'll go by yourself, she answered. You'll have to learn to play like other children does when they haven't got sisters and brothers. Aunt Dixon goes off on the moor by himself and plays for hours. That's how he made friends with the pony. He got sheep on the moor that knows him and birds as comes and eats out of his hand. However little there is to eat, he always saves a bit of his bread to coax his pets. It was really this mention of Dixon which had made Mary decide to go out, though she was not aware of it. There would be birds outside, though there would not be ponies or sheep. They would be different from the birds in India, and it might amuse her to look at them. Martha found her coat and hat for her and a pair of stout little boots, and she showed her way and she showed her her way downstairs if that goes round that way thou'll come to the gardens she said pointing to a gate in a wall of shrubbery there's lots of flowers in summertime but there's nothing blooming now she seemed to hesitate a moment before she added one of the gardens is locked up no one has been in it for ten years why asked mary in spite of herself here was an other locked door added to the hundred in this strange house mr craven had it shut when his wife died so sudden he wouldn't let no one go inside it was her garden he locked the door and dug a hole and buried the key there's mrs medlock's bell ringing i must run after she was gone, Mary turned down the walk which led to the door in the shrubbery. She could not help thinking about the garden which no one had been in for ten years. She wondered what it would look like and whether there were any flowers still alive in it. When she had passed through the shrubbery gate, she found herself in great gardens with wide lawns and winding walks with clipped borders. There were trees and flower beds and evergreens clipped into strange shapes and a large pool with an old grey fountain in its midst. But the flower beds were bare and wintry and the fountain was not playing. This was not the garden which was shut up. How could a garden be shut up? You could always walk into a garden. She was just thinking this when she saw that at the end of the path she was following there seemed to be a long wall with ivy growing over it she was not familiar enough with england to know that she was coming upon the kitchen gardens where the vegetables and fruit were going growing she went towards the wall and found that there was a green door in the ivy and that it stood open this was not the closed garden evidently and she could go into it. She th went through the door and found that it was a garden with walls all round it, and that it was only one of several walled gardens which seemed to open into one another. She saw so another open green door, revealing bushes and pathways between beds containing winter vegetables. Fruit trees were trained flat against the wall, and 
Over some of the beds, there were glass frames. The place was bare and ugly enough, Mary thought, as she stood and stared about her. It might be nicer in summer, when things were green, but there was nothing pretty about it now. Presently, an old man with a spade over his shoulder walked through the door leading from the second garden. He looked startled when he saw Mary, and then touched his cap. He had a surly old face, did not seem at all pleased to see her. But then she was displeased with his garden and wore her quite contrary expression, and certainly did not seem at all pleased to see him. What is this place? she asked. One of the kitchen gardens, he answered. What is that? said Mary, pointing through the other green door. Another of um, shortly. There's another on the other, on the t'other side of the wall, and there's the orchard t'other side of that. Can I go in them? asked Mary. If thou likes, but there's not to see. Mary made no response. She went down the path and through the second green door. There she found more walls and winter vegetables and glass frames. But in the second wall there was another green door and it was not open. Perhaps it led into the garden which no one had seen for ten years. As she was not at all a timid child and always did what she wanted to do, Mary went to the green door and turned the handle. She hoped the door would not open because she wanted to be sure she had found the mysterious garden. But it did open quite easily and she walked through it and found herself in an orchard. There were walls all round it also and trees trained against them and there were bare fruit trees growing in the winter-browned grass. But there was no green door to be seen anywhere. Mary looked for it, and yet when she had entered the upper end of the garden, she had noticed that the wall did not seem to end with the orchid, but to extend beyond it as if it enclosed a place at the other side. She could see the tops of trees above the wall, and when she stood still, she saw a bird with a bright red breast sitting on the topmost branch of one of them. And suddenly he burst into his winter song, almost as if he had caught sight of her and was calling to her. I'll stop it here and read the rest in a little bit of a bonus episode later this week. But, um, bye. Today we are not reading The Secret Garden.